If you would, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14. That's on page 721. If you're going to use one of the Bibles we provided here in the chair pockets, there's some Bibles at the end of these aisles as well. Have someone just pass one to you if you need it. Again, uh, we're going to start Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verse 14. Having finally recognized him as the king, Jesus announces to his apostles that he will forever write us with God, forever make us right with God by going to a Roman cross where he will give his life as a ransom for many, a king's ransom, humbling himself to pay the price that we deserve to pay for our rebellion and to imprint this sort of New and at first kind of crazy sounding cross plan upon his apostles. He informs them that they will need to take up their own cross, as it were. Preparing us all for life following Jesus. Which is ever responding to the king's ransom by taking up our own real crosses. Ever responding to his gift His payment out of gratitude, taking up crosses, which just means willingly enduring opposition for following Jesus, willingly denying ourselves things because we judge Jesus is worth it. And so to empower them, empower his apostles to endure personal sacrifice, Jesus takes three of them up to encounter Something pretty amazing, a little, a little hint, a little moment of his resurrection glory to remind them, I am life and I can give you life forever. And on their way sort of down the mountain, they encounter cross number one. Cross number one, the cross of what's precious. That's the first cross we'll look at starting this morning. We'll go into to May and June looking at these different crosses. The cross of what's precious. The apostles witness a man surrender to God his most precious possession, his son. Read with me. Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. When they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them. And the scribes were arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and he grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, it immediately convulsed the boy. He fell on the ground rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? 
the father said, from childhood. It has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us. Help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is God's word. Katie, my wife Katie, turned to me at one point this week and said, Thank you for being the crier in our relationship. And I don't know how to respond to that. Uh, In fact, (laughs) I really debated having it as my sermon opener this morning. Three three stories that always get me, always turn these faucets on, all right? All of which, all of which involved a father surrendering their firstborn son. Their father surrendering to God their firstborn son. So the first is a little book called The Boy Who Cried Abba. Abba is a word in Aramaic. It's an affectionate word for daddy. The Boy Who Cried Abba. It's by Bren Manning. It's this little book. If you ever want to borrow it, you know, let me know. And if you're a male, you know, be sure to read it outside of your marriage relationship so your wife doesn't see you. All right? Uh, I'm telling you. Waterfalls. Big time. Another one is Genesis 22, where Abraham, climbs a mountain with only his long-awaited firstborn son as a potential sacrifice to worship God. A third is a movie that seems to just roll like on a loop on TNT 24-7. It's a film from 2002 called John Q. Uh, It's about a father and a son, all right, a heart transplant, Heart transplant and stars Denzel, right? Need I say more? One of the fine actors of our generation, Denzel Washington. You know him, you love him. Anything he's in, it's like, oh man, powerful. And this movie is certainly not an exception. We have here as well this morning a father son story. And Luke tells us something that Mark's account here does not. In Luke's gospel, we find out that it is this man's only son. The only son that he's going to surrender to God. And of course he is the only son. Of course, nothing could be more precious than an only son. In the ancient Near East, families lived according to what was known as the law of primogeniture. Right? Primo meaning first, geniture, generation. The first son... When the father died, the first son assumed responsibility 
for the family inheritance, right, for the bank account. And he carried on the life of the family name. So the first son was precious not only emotionally, he was precious economically, and he was precious really in terms of eternal legacy, right? It doesn't get more precious than that. So if God is going to confront humanity with the, with the scales, sort of what is most precious to us, what is most important to you, of course he orders up the most precious possession possible in the ancient Near East for that kind of audience because we also are meant, like they are, to enter into the story. They're meant to think, what is my most precious possession? They're meant to apply God's word. What is most precious to me? And the second question is like it. Why would God ask me to to surrender to him what's most precious to me? Why would God ask that of me? Isn't he a good God? Doesn't he love me? Why would he ask me to surrender to him what's most precious to me? And this is, by the way, the question we're going to be driving at this whole sermon. We're going to be getting at, heading towards, bringing up again and again. Why would God ask me to surrender to him what's most precious to me? The first reason is so you'll see your love problem. That we all have a love problem. Now, the Beatles told us that all you need is love, right? And this was said in the 1960s, right? Summers of love, this sort of thing. George Harrison said that if enough people love enough, that will cure the world's problems. But the problem with people isn't actually a lack of love. It is love misdirected and misproportioned. Love misdirected and misproportioned. Loving good things too much. That's the problem. And you might think, well, wait a minute. I know some people who got just no love. When I, when I talk with them, they're just hard. Where's the love there? I, I recall for me what was my most unpleasant, selfish boss I ever had. And even for him, I, I won't say his name because he listens to our podcasts. Right? No, he doesn't, but... He doesn't even live here. He's far, far away. But I remember on a couple different occasions, he opened up and just sort of shared. On both occasions, he, he has shared about situations from which he was trying to get love. He didn't put it that way, but relationships that caused him harm. And in one of those relationships, he said, um, you know, essentially he was looking for love. But instead, what was communicated is that you get love by first achieving success. Right? You get love by first proving yourself, right? Whether it be success in grades or in sports or in being a good kid, and that's how you get love. And he said there was another significant relationship in his life in which it was communicated to him that the security of success is a form of love. The security of success is a form of love by which he meant I don't spend time with you. I'm away a lot on business, but I give you things so you can go to the best school and get the best things and live a good life. I have the security I'm giving you, and that's love. 
I achieve success, you get security. That's love. You see? Now, a child grows up with that. They absorb that. That's the narrative of their life. What happens? Misdirected love, misproportioned love, and ultimately destructive relationships with other people. Destructive habits. It's close though, isn't it? They almost got love. They were so close to love. It's misdirected, misproportioned, ultimately destructive love. The New Testament says that all of us worship and love something. There's something upon which we set our affections and from which we try to get hope to carry on. And it's usually directed towards something God-like. So Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that the world claiming to be wise about love, claiming to be wise, and we would say these things are wise, right? Living for another person, loving a job, sticking with our future plans, hoping in these things, banking on securities. These things are all wise. Even God would want me to do that. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they were fools. They became fools. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And check this out. Listen to this. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is forever praised. It's close, isn't it? Even even the, the language there is close. The creature versus the big C creator. Close. Why do people then choose what's down here. Why, why do people choose to love what's God-like? Even, even the things of God, above God himself. Why do we do this? Control. We can control, we can manage, we can regulate, we can even kind of preserve and keep tabs on things that look like God. It might give us some of the things that God gives us. But we can spend less time if we want to. We can get away from it if we want to, unlike God. In our story involving a boy suffering physically at the hands of evil, consider the first love of two of the main characters, the first love of the disciples and the first love of the father. The disciples love their status. They love their status. Like a lot of churchgoers, disciples love being associated with Jesus, even if they don't love Jesus supremely yet. They love saying, yeah, but, but here we are. I'm, I'm part, of, part of a church. I'm here with Jesus. Check that off as my God. And we've seen this before with the disciples, right? It was a constant theme leading up to chapter 8, and even into chapter 8. That's why Jesus takes the disciples on a men's retreat. To get them out of all they would consider normal for people to be right with him. Those who are just associated with him. And so he goes up and we see the genuine faith of a Syrophoenician woman. And now she's included with Jesus. We see it with the feeding of the 4,000. Right? Many of whom were non-Jews. To point out, hey... I'm going to them too. It's not your status. It's not your being sort of physically near me that makes you right with me. It's trust in me. And the disciples kind of keep missing this. Notice in this story, 
when faced with a major dilemma, when faced with a major confrontation, Jesus isn't around, they don't pray to Jesus, the Father, any, uh, any member of the Godhead, when casting out a demon. Now, he has to say to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Sometimes we just miss that statement. But how obvious is this to us readers? The disciples completely missed it. Now, I am no perfect Christian. But if I was confronted down here by a child shaking, rolling around and foaming at the mouth, yeah, I'm definitely resorting to 911 in prayer. All right, those are like the two things I'm going to right away. And the disciples missed that. And if 911 in prayer doesn't work, I'm resorting to distance running. I'm, I'm getting out of here. Because that, that ain't normal. I think, God, it's something, there's something happening. They miss it. When they try to act on behalf of this father and son, they rely completely on their status as Jesus' disciples as opposed to Jesus himself. Do you see the difference there? It's like saying, oh, I am a Christian versus I know Jesus. It's slightly different. But people in churches have got it confused for many years. In fact, churches today, these are what I would just call, I know it, I've thought of different terms here, but the term I came up with, these would be confused magicians. I know this sounds like a weird term, but I want to explain why I use that, because you find them in churches sometimes. These are people often called part of the word of faith or victory movement that say, you know what, you are a child of God. And the reason you don't have victory in your life is because you haven't claimed it. That's why. You don't know your status. You just haven't claimed it for yourself. That's why you don't have victory in your life. Here, I'm a disciple of Jesus, so I can free your son. I'm going to claim it. Son, healed, demon, gone. I'm a disciple. Don't you know who I am? It's really tantamount to magic. Or even really witchcraft. In and, of its, in and of ourselves, there's power to heal. In and of ourselves, there's power to provide deliverance. Now, that was kind of a quick sidebar. Humiliated and dejected before the scribes, the disciples go to Jesus privately. Why could not we cast it out? Did you notice that? Again, self-reliance. Why, why couldn't we cast this out, Jesus? Again, relying on their status. Why couldn't we do this? Why are they so devastated? Because their status with Jesus let them down. Let them down. This says in verse 18, they were not able. They were not able. People love as most precious what they can control, what they can manage, but it can't forever love you back. Right? It cannot forever love you back. Even, your, even if it's your best friend who loves Jesus, who cares about you, they cannot forever love you back. No one can. But certainly our possessions, our habits, our wants, our goals, our hopes, those things that are not set in Jesus cannot love you back. Eventually, they will devastate you. So, the disciples... Their first love, it's your own status. And it's going to sound harsh, but this father has a love problem also. You're like, but it's his son, but he has a love problem. His most precious possession is someone created in the image of God, but is not God. 
You can hear the misproportioned love in his voice, right? When Jesus directs his question to the scribes, it's the father who speaks up. He's the one who raises his hands, hey, 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 hey. Because he's going to use this opportunity to bring up his son. Notice he doesn't ever actually answer Jesus' question. What are you arguing about? Well, we're arguing about the dilemma of healing and how this... My son, let me just talk about my son. Notice the request of Jesus in verse 22 that he makes. If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Did you see that? He didn't say help my son, help him. Help us, have compassion on us. Because it's not just about the son, and it never is, by the way, just about the loved one who's suffering. It's about what's going to happen to our heart if they should suffer further harm. What's going to happen to us? You can't, the father's happiness is inextricably bound up with the son. And we can never tell apart what's unselfish love and what's selfish. It's so hard. In churches today, these are also parents. <laughs> these are parents. You know what I'm talking about, parents, when you get into this story and you think about your own child. But there's one difference with the father that sets him apart from the disciples, from the scribes. It's his precious possession. It's his precious possession that he brings to Jesus. And that makes a world of difference. It's not not a well-meaning friend offering divine secrets about how to make this right from the outside. It's not a preacher or theologian or advisor who does his best to empathize. Being right or trying to fix somebody else's wrong, it can make a dent here or there. But there's something different becomes possible when it's our precious possession that we bring to Jesus. Something different can happen when it's our thing, our precious, that we can bring to him. Notice the difference it makes for the father compared to disciples. The disciples are devastated when their precious status doesn't give them back what they anticipated. It doesn't heal the boy. They're devastated. But they don't say, hey, Jesus, oh my, we, we get it. We've relied on our status. We've relied on our, our being part of the 12. No, they don't surrender. In fact, we see in a couple weeks, the disciples get deeply offended when someone outside the 12 cast out a demon in Jesus' name. They say, hey, 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 not part of the 12. <laughs> What's this guy doing? And then they say, and then these children come up to Jesus while they're having a club meeting. They're like, children, seriously? Hey, 12, Jesus. Right, they haven't given it up. They haven't surrendered that to him. But the father listens to Jesus. He actually listens to Jesus and goes a different route, which leads to the second reason why God would ask me to surrender to him what's most precious to me. And that is so you'll acknowledge your inability to preserve, to protect what's precious. You'll acknowledge your inability. God, I can't control this. I can't protect this. I can't preserve what's precious to me. The hospital is about to release John Q's son to die from heart failure. He's ultimately going to die in the story. Remember, he's gone. He's, gonna, he's dying. He needs to have a heart transplant in the story. But John Q doesn't have a job. Even though he's, look, he's a hardworking man. He's a responsible man. He doesn't have a job. So they have to release his young boy because they don't have health insurance. And 
essentially release him to die. And there's a scene right before the father, remember played by Denzel Washington, so you can imagine how great it is. Denzel Washington, has, he has to go retrieve his boy from the hospital, and he's talking with his wife, the boy's mother, and she implores John Q, do something, do something. And he says, he says, he says you know, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of it. And listen to her reply. Man, it gave me chills. She goes, you know, you always take care of everything, but it's not enough, is it? She just leaves him with that. It's like, oh, man, gosh. You know, I wondered this week what the mother in this story said to the real-life father before he walked out the door. This is a real moment in history. They, They had likely tried everything. In this culture, the village doctor, the priest, you know, even itinerant miracle workers who are roaming around Palestine at this time. And he'd just gotten worse. What does she say as he left out the door that day? You know, maybe she said something like, you know, you always take responsibility. It's not enough. This time, is it? And even if she didn't say that, did he feel that? Did he feel the end of his rope? Like a failure? Even if he hadn't acknowledged it maybe at that moment or on the way down to take his child to Jesus, he feels the end of his rope here with Jesus. Look in verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And, he gets some more detail, it's cast him into the fire and the water to destroy him. If you can do anything, have compassion on this, help us. Notice, two commas indicate he's, he's so aware at this point of his total inability that he's come to the end of his rope. He tells Jesus, since childhood. And in this context, you, you, you see it in the context, right? It's been a long time. Almost as long as I can remember. This evil spirit has tormented my son. Nothing I can do about it. And he even uses the word, here's a second detailer, to destroy him. He knows that in the face of such evil, he can't stop it. I, I can't stop this powerful spirit from wanting to essentially kill my son. Many of us, we feel totally in control totally able to balance or fix as necessary your precious possession. Or worse, you rely on your precious possession to preserve or fix you. To be the thing you look forward to, to give you hope, the thing to keep you going. Might be a person or a group of people. A child, like we see in this story, a spouse, a friend. Might be co-workers. Might be people from whom you're trying to impress. It might be a habit or ritual that brings you comfort or joy. Something as mundane and simple as a pre-bed ice cream. Or a type of exercise or sport that you're just so into. It might be something you haven't experienced or that you wish to again. So getting married, having your first child, or having another one, 
right? It might be a season of life that was so good to you and you want to re-experience it. You want to recapture it in your life. It's precious to you. It might be future plans. Whatever that may be. It could be a holiday. It could be the coming weekend. It could be this evening. Maybe it's not letting anything get in the way of participating in a shady Caribbean festival or carnival. I'm just going to do it. It's precious to me. Sorry, that's too close to home. Could be securities, your career, success, your reputation, your good deeds, anything you put security in, your own righteousness, because I do this, I'm good with God. Because I have this career, my life will be happy. Because I have this much in my bank account, I'll be fine. Oh, it's going to come back to bite you. It will devastate you if you put all your hope in that. And if you still can't identify what your most precious possession is, imagine Jesus sitting down with you just right now. Imagine him sitting down with you for an hour over coffee, and you're sitting there at Cafe del Sol. He says, Ryan, you know, if you would come after me, you know, you must take up your cross and deny yourself blank. You must take up your cross and deny yourself blank. What would you hope that Jesus wouldn't mention in that moment? What would you hope to say, oh, please don't say, please don't say, please don't say. And you try to hide it for the rest of the conversation. What would make you feel kind of like this guy up here? Sermons about preciousness. (laughs) Timing on that. Smeagol, you knew he was going to come up at some point. What would that be? The second reason, getting to the inability. I, 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 I'm so attached. I need help, Jesus. I'm unable to control this any longer. That's the second reason he asks us to surrender to him, our most precious possession. Third reason, so you'll be freed to experience what's forever precious. Now, why the Father's belief, unbelief statement has always stood out to me as one of the most relatable verses of Scripture. Verse 19, I've come to believe, is one of the most important. Verse 19, Jesus says to the crowd, O faithless, this gets cool here, by the way. This gets pretty amazing. Check this out. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Now, you think, you, you, read, you probably read this before, you're like, how important can this be? You maybe even glossed right over it. It sounds like Jesus is just kind of like sighing as an aside, like, oh, how long? And it is a sigh. But it might sound familiar to you, a little like an Old Testament psalm. Now, psalms are, if you go back in the Bible, or in the Old Testament, they're Old Testament prayers of honest feeling to God. They're composed and prayed often as requests for God's nearness. God seems distant. Away, come to us again, O Lord. Don't hide your face any longer. Fifteen times, in fact, in the Psalms, does the psalmist cry out, O Lord, how long? Fifteen times. So let me give you a couple examples here. Psalm 3, verse 1. O Lord, how long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 89, 46. Oh Lord, how long will you hide yourself forever? Psalm 90, 
13, return, O Lord, how long? Now walk with me here. Notice the similarities. When Jesus says, O faithless, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? He is opening the possibility to answer forever. Now, many are going to say, oh, you know, maybe just for a few more days, he's going to die. But if you trust Jesus, the possibility is open to answer that question forever. Forever with him. How long? Always. And with Jesus. In doing so, in making this statement, he is reversing the Psalms. He is reversing the direction and the duration of the Psalms. Remember, the Psalms were man to God. This is God to man. The Psalms were about temporarily, God temporarily breaking in his temporary presence. This is with Jesus forever. He's reversing history here. The Psalms are a cry. I want you to get this. The Psalms are a cry out to God to once again draw near to us. Jesus' psalm here is a cry out to us to draw near to him forever. Don't you see this generation? Psalms are directed from us to God. Jesus' psalm, God to us. O faithless generation, I want to bear with you. I want to be with you forever. Bring him to me. You are forever precious to me. I can be to you forever precious. I can be to you forever precious. How? Well, just as the father of this story can draw near to Jesus because Jesus lifts his son's corpse from the ground so we can draw near to our father because he lifted his son's corpse from the ground. So, he poses this question. Faithless generation, how long I can bear with you? He poses it to everyone. The generation around him, the scribes, the disciples, don't quite get it yet. Only this dad surrenders to Jesus' most precious possession so he can experience Jesus as the greatest possession. That's the sermon in a nutshell. No one experiences the preciousness of Jesus like those who surrender to him what's most precious to them. No one can experience the, the, the preciousness, the worth of Jesus like those who surrender to him what's most precious to them. And that can come in a lot of different forms. It could, for some, that's going to require surrendering what's precious temporarily as in a fast from something. As Thomas Merton once said, if you can't abstain from anything, even a good thing temporarily, it is your master. You've a, you're enslaved to it. For others, it's going to require surrendering what's precious spiritually. Doing this spiritually. Telling God, and probably you should tell someone else in the presence of someone else, you're trusting your precious to him. Just admit it to him. Just surrender it to him. Express it. Good idea to have someone nearby to make it more real and keep you accountable. For others, it might, by the way, for this, for me, it's you guys. You know, at least once a year, The Holy Spirit directs me, he presses in upon me a serious moment of willingness to surrender to him, pastoring this church. Because I love you guys. I don't want to be anywhere else. Family to me. And I don't say that enough. But even a good thing, even a great thing, can become too much of a God thing. 
And God is to say, are you willing to surrender this to me? For others, it might require surrendering what's precious and deteriorating, acknowledging to him your inability to help your grandmother, your loved one who's sick or ill. Your savings account that's going towards zero rapidly. It's deteriorating. And by the way, don't be surprised in surrendering to Jesus that things actually get worse before they get better. Did you notice that in this story? Notice, after surrendering his son to Jesus, and Jesus commands the Holy Spirit out so Jesus has done something about it, the boy gets worse before he gets better. He's a corpse before he's alive again. Which should be an encouragement to us. That when you surrender your precious thing to God, when you pray to God for help, he hears you. Not only hears you, oftentimes he's acting even though you just see things getting worse. That's an encouragement. For others, surrender might require real and physical surrender, an actual surrender, a career advancement opportunity you let pass by to love your family for Christ. You, you, know, you might surrender a move back to your home country because you love the family of Christ. and You know God's calling you to stay longer. It might be surrendering your nest egg to give to world missions. Actual surrender. And here's the best news of all, friends. The only thing required to draw near to Jesus forever isn't your quality of trust or your quantity of trust, but authentic trust. Some of the greatest words offered in Scripture that Jesus accepts are, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is a poor in spirit trust that's aware of its shortcomings, but authentic enough to admit for me to even grow in this trust or even keep this trust. I need your help, King Jesus. I recognize that. But with the weak but real faith that is mine, I can see that I am forever precious to you, and you have offered yourself to be the most and forever precious to me. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that only an authentic, if weak, barely beating, barely alive trust in you is required to draw near to you forever. I feel like that's what I have. It's weak, but it's real. And Father, Often, so often, more often than we'd like to admit or acknowledge, trust in you as our most precious possession requires surrendering to you, trusting to you what's most precious to us. For many of us, dare I say most of us, it is the way to trust, to give up, to surrender that good thing, that God-like thing, or what is flat-out sin to you. This is our cross that is worth bearing because you are most precious. Give us the courage this morning, Holy Spirit, to surrender that to you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.